Hello, guys, and welcome to our show. Good people, welcome. By the way, I don't want to discriminate bad people. Welcome to our show as well. Anyone who want to learn more about SEO, <laughs> about content experience analysis, welcome, because SEO is not longer that we have many years ago. It's not about only creating content and getting backlinks. By the way, I remember this time I had a team of copywriters who wrote about anything and uh, I have one specialist who promoted all this content. We literally bought more backlinks than competitors had. <laughs> Today it doesn't work, so we need to consider more customers, users. And I'm so excited to discuss this topic with Mike Graham. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Anatoly? I'm doing great. Looking forward to learn more about that. And I found great experts often pay more attention to a human being, not search engines, not algorithms. And once I watched interview with Mr. Beast and he described his way of learning YouTube and uh, he uh, tried to understand why people watch videos, why videos can help to retain audience. He doesn't learn about YouTube algorithms because these algorithms can be changed time to time uh, and YouTube can do it, Google can do it plus seven thousand times a year so it's a lot mike before we start just tell more about yourself experience background and why you pay more attention today to content experience than seo so yeah i uh, i've been around for a very long time i actually came online in 1995 which means i've been around for 28 years <laughs> and a lot of the people who are in the seo industry weren't even born when i came online <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I started very early on. I came on in uh, 1995. By 1997, um, I was doing nothing else but uh, what we now call search engine optimization, SEO. It didn't have a name back then. And believe it or not, back in those days, you, you know, right now we talk about, you know, two search engines. We talk about Google and a little bit about Bing. But back then there were about 150 search engines. There were so many of them. Everybody was trying to get into the game. Um, and I started to uh, realize um, that I could actually manipulate the rank, you know, where where the web pages were uh, ranked in uh, the list. Um, and I became fascinated by that. Um, and I wrote um, an ebook, believe it or not, on um, what I called search engine positioning back then, before we started talking about search engine optimization. Um, and I wrote this uh, this uh, little uh, ebook about that. And a guy who worked for um, a search engine um, called Webcrawler way back in the day, that was one of the very first search engines, sent me a note, said, I read your book, he said, and uh, some of it you're right and the rest of it you're wrong. He said, but you need to understand the science of information retrieval. Now, information retrieval has been around for a long time. So he recommended that I read a book which was written by a scientist called Gerard Salton. This is a really hard book to read. But if you can read just some of it and begin to understand the science that Google and all search engines are using for information retrieval to satisfy the human need for information, that's what a search engine does. And when you begin to understand the science, the underlying science, it becomes so much easier to optimize for the search engine then. And the underlying science is pretty much based on exactly what you just said. It's trying to understand what is the what does the end user want? What are they trying to achieve? And then what will be the best result for them? So I always felt 
even back then, that a lot of people spent too much time talking about the algorithm and spamming and do those kind of things, when actually the science is just trying to find out what a human being wants. So the more that you create content that looks and sounds like it's designed for a human being, the better it's going to work at a search engine. So anyway, I wrote a second book um, that was published uh, 21 years ago, and uh, it became a bestseller. Um, everybody liked it except Google because I gave a lot away about their algorithms. <laughs> um, and uh, I had a, a small, um, uh, what had become a search engine optimization company. Th there was a, a, a long discussion back in the day about what this thing was, what it should be called. And I was completely against search engine optimization. And I'll tell you why. Like I say, I've been around in the industry for 28 years, and I haven't met anybody who's optimized the search engine. So why we call it search engine optimization, I have no idea. Anyway, we're kind of stuck with it. So I had a small company, 1998, um, and then I sold that to a guy who was the founder of a company called iProspect. And that was a startup back in the day. iProspect is now the world's largest um, SEO company. They've got like 5,000 employees and they're in 28 countries, you know? Yeah, nice. So, 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 so uh, the book was a great seller. Um, I uh, moved to uh, the U.S. Um, and uh, eventually I had a long-term relationship with the people who owned Search Engine Watch, which was the biggest publication for uh, SEO uh, for search marketers at the time, a company called ClickZ and a conference called SES Conference and Expo. So I ran those for five years, um, and then I moved to Acronym Media, which is a top New York agency. My office was on the 65th floor of the Empire State Building. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. And, um, and I, uh, I joined for recently one year with uh, NP Digital, which is the company owned by Neil Patel. Um, but uh, another change more recently, I didn't even get a chance to mention it to you, but next week I'm launching my own uh, search and performance marketing agency called Chelsea Digital. So that nice. was a very long answer to a short question. <laughs> great, great. I love your experience. Love it, love it. And, you know, for me, I found that the best uh, books that I read were written plus 40 years ago. For example, Joe uh, Sugarman wrote a book about marketing. And I can relate all these insights to digital marketing because he described about human psychology, not about uh, how to satisfy this algorithm machines that Google can change, you know, and Google uh, does it time to time. And uh, Mike, I have the question about topics that most content creators often ignore. Uh, I, uh, I spoke with uh, Jim Edwards. He worked in Business Insider 10 years. He started on this company from scratch. Then company was sold for $500 million. Ground, good success. Uh, mm. And he told me that success of Business Insider depends on creating non-boring content. If you are talking about business, it's boring. Uh, but uh, Business Insider found the way how to entertain readers. Uh, that's why they got a million loyal uh people who can consume this content. Can you tell how to do it? How to create non-boring content from your experience? So even going back to uh, writing that first book, in fact, both books uh, back in the day, I was talking about information retrieval, which is a science. And not a lot of people 
um, want to spend too much time, you know, boiling their brains, trying to understand uh, the science. So I developed a technique and, and obviously uh, with Business Insider, a lot of stuff can either be very complicated yeah, or it can just be very dull. So you have to add just a little bit of personality. So imagine yourself if you were reading this story or telling the story to somebody else, just sitting, having a drink in a bar or something, that kind of thing, and turn it in more like it's part of a conversation. And that's the way that uh, most people like to try and interact, you know? So I actually discovered that um, quite a lot of stuff that's very dull and boring, that you can tell the odd joke around it as well, you know? So try and inject a little bit of personality, a little bit of humor, um, and make it sound like it's written by a human being. You know, I mean, everybody's talking about chat GPT at the moment and generative AI. You know, it's fine. They can do all of that stuff. But chat GPT doesn't really have a sense of humor or a personality and doesn't have a story to tell unless you tell it what to say. You know? So when you're generating content, I, I think, you know, it's, it's kind of um, people say it all of the time. Put yourself the other way around. Put yourself as the receiver of this message. Put yourself as the receiver of the information. And when you're writing it, read it back to yourself and say, is this entertaining me or is this boring me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. And um, according to data, uh, people bounce fast. You know, it doesn't matter what kind of content. On YouTube, 80% of people can uh, leave videos for uh, in the first 20 seconds uh, most uh, users uh, bounce uh, websites like plus 50 percent can bounce because it's boring can you tell how how, how to hook their attention you know i mean like because uh, okay i can share value i can create great content i can feel it's good but when people open uh, you have a few seconds to hook them to get their attention any tips about that so, so this is a very interesting thing. I was the publisher of uh, Search Engine Watch and ClickZ, and at the time they were the two largest uh, publications in the digital marketing industry. And we had uh, 300 writers, 300 contributors for each of those. And they all had different styles of writing, but we used to put a style guide together to give them an indication of what to write. Um, so, uh, so a lot of the, um, the, the complexities um, in, uh, uh, in, you know, some of the areas that we have to write about, make an analogy, put it into plain, simple English, make it so easy. Um, you know, there is this uh, great book on uh, usability. Uh, I can't remember what's the guy's name. Anyway, the book is called Don't Make Me Think. And it's mm -hmm. just such a beautiful book if you read it, because the whole point of that is if I have to think too hard, yeah, and if I don't get it instantly, I will bounce. I will leave if I don't get it instantly, you know. So right at the very top or at the front of the video, you have to let people know exactly what's coming. What's, you know, what's the point of me watching this? Tell me why I'm watching this. But tell me right at the very beginning why I need to watch this, you know. And the other interesting thing about video is, and it's interesting that you said that because a lot of people say, you know, with video, uh, you have to make short videos. People don't want to see a video longer than 30 seconds. That's bullshit. I mean, seriously, I, I actually had a conversation with uh, somebody. This is a true story. Trying to convince me that nobody wants to watch a video on the Internet for more than 30 seconds. And I said to them, what are you doing tonight? And they said, what's it got to do with it? And I said, what are you doing tonight? And this woman that I was talking to, 
She said, I'm just going to watch a movie. I said, you're going to watch a movie where? She said, on Netflix. I said, oh, so you're going to watch a video on the internet for 90 minutes. She went, that's not the same thing. I said, of course, it's the same thing. You're watching yeah. a video on the internet for 90 minutes. At the end of the day, um, understand who the audience is and what it is they want to receive. The only reason that people leave, well, you know, you can just be very bad at doing something, but you can create great content. But if the context is wrong for the end user, doesn't matter how beautiful it is that you've made it. If it doesn't connect with me immediately, then I'm not going to watch it. End of story. I'm a big music fan and I've been around for a long time. So I use this a lot. When people say you wouldn't watch a video for 30 seconds, I love Jimi Hendrix. Okay. And I've collected everything, bootleg albums, those kind of things. If there was somebody sent me a link and said, there's a video on YouTube of Jimi Hendrix and it's five hours long and nobody's seen it. I'll go and watch it from beginning to end <laughs> because, because it's just made perfect for me, you know, but if they said there's a video for somebody showing you how to bake or do cooking that I'm not interested in, I'm not going to watch it. That's it. You know? Yeah. Nice. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, I think that just, sorry, just to, to, to yeah. cap that off. There isn't one way of doing things, but your content needs to reflect some kind of personality itself, you know, where it's come from, why it's being written, why it should be uh, important. So it's not so much about the style and the way that you do it. It's more about understanding the receiver. Yeah. And instead of thinking about what you want to say to them, whether it's typing it or in a video, understand what they want to hear or what they want to see and create it for them. That's it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, how to collect data about the receiver, uh, customers, users who will consume this content. And uh, I remember uh, a story about Jeff Bezos. Uh, once he got data about new tool uh, and the research team asked him to give more time to collect data, to learn more customers. And he denied. He told, guys, we have enough data and we need to test, experiment. And this product was Alexa. Today, most uh, US homes have this product. Uh, and Jeff Bezos has intuition. Jeff Bezos has uh, enough data. So can you tell how uh, to collect data and to get the point it's enough to know our audience? <laughs> So that's a good question because there is so much data around. So it's not about the volume of the data. It's not about the amount of data that you can get. It's about the quality of the data, not the quantity of the data. So pulling together, um, you know, huge amounts of data. Um, uh, you know, I, I heard a, a great um, analogy that somebody said uh, quite a while ago when they, we first started talking about big data. He said, it's not about how much data you can pull together. He said, because if you're trying to find a needle in a haystack, adding more hay doesn't help. So you have to understand, you know, that you just need good quality data. Um, and then remember um, these two things, people talk about data and metrics, and they're not the same thing. Data is about surfacing insight, okay? When you surface insight, then with those insights, you can turn it into actions and those actions you can measure. That's when you know whether you're being successful, okay? And then how you measure and what you measure, again, it depends on the circumstances. 
But when you what it is, what you know, if it's quantitative, then you look at the numbers, it will tell you something. But I always find with content, qualitative. So give reasons to to people who are interacting with your content to feed it back to you, to give you some hard signals back that they like this kind of stuff. So you really can't beat actually surveying the audience and asking the audience questions about why they like this or include a mechanism within your content to give them a reason to give you some kind of feedback, you know? I mean, with um, with Search Engine Watch and Click Z. Um, we would send out millions and millions of emails, yeah? And then we would be looking for, you know, how many opens, how many clicks, this, that, counting all of these things. The two hard metrics for me back then were subscribe, unsubscribe. Sometimes I didn't care if they didn't read. It's just don't unsubscribe, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, got it, got it. <laughs> Interesting. Mike, uh, I have the question about AI. You touched uh, in the beginning about AI and you started your career when people knew about AI from movies like uh, Terminator, <laughs> Matrix. So uh, today it's another story. It's hard to ignore AI, probably impossible tomorrow. Uh, can you tell how to use AI today? Because I see when companies use generic prompts like how to play a guitar, how to lose weight, or, uh, uh, and then they complain that AI is not creative, you know, just generic stuff. Uh, can you tell your way uh, of using AI and how to adapt uh, to AI today? So, as I mentioned before, um, I read this book on information retrieval. Uh, mm -hmm. which is a science. I actually joined um, ACM, which is the world's largest uh, computing society. Um, and I've been there for 20 years. Now, information retrieval is actually a subset of artificial intelligence. So I've been studying it for a long time. People don't realize that Google has been using artificial intelligence since day one, since they started. So this is not new. It's different in the size and the amount of data that you can work with but they've been using artificial intelligence from day one. So first of all, you have to understand exactly where we are as, as far as the science goes. So with artificial intelligence, uh, you have uh, weak AI and you have strong AI. And this is the way they look at it in science, okay? So strong AI is gonna be the area uh, like Google's DeepMind where it doesn't rely on an input from somewhere else. It actually makes a decision on its own. Right now, what we're talking about when we talk about AI is we're talking about how excellent machine learning has become, okay? So it's machine learning. Chat GPT is machine learning. Machine learning is a subset below artificial intelligence. And even though that's known as weak AI, it's absolutely mind-blowing what it can do. However, if you compare them side by side on what an AI can do, and the, the way that I explain this to people is quite simply this. If you get into an autonomous vehicle, a vehicle that can drive itself and ask it to drive you home, it will drive you home. That's incredible, yeah? If you pick up your phone and ask Siri to order you a pizza, she'll order you a pizza. That's incredible. However, if you get into the car and ask it to order you a pizza, or if you ask Siri to drive you home, you're a hungry person going nowhere because the AI is only specialized to do this one thing, yeah? Okay, 
So ChatGPT, which is why everybody's talking at the moment, is known as an LLM, a large language model, yes? And it's very good at doing one thing, but it relies on the input. So look at where the input comes from. Originally, when ChatGPT came out, I think towards the back end of last year, the data that it was using was two years old. It was two years old. So there's a lot of information that you couldn't get from ChatGPT because it happened after th that uh, last particular crawl, you know? So uh, you have to understand the limitations, first of all, and we're not about to lose our jobs and uh, the killer robots are not going to come and get us in the middle of the night. Uh, we're not there yet. So how should you use ChatGPT? How should you use generative AI? It should be used as a tool to assist you in creating the final product. It should never be the final product itself. Yes. And if you think about this, and I was talking to someone from Google uh, just recently, I did an interview um, and we were talking about this and it turned out that he actually had a journalistic background as I do myself. I've done a lot of my life as I do myself. When you're a journalist, you write your story, you give it to an editor. The editor changes a few things, uh, makes it look good for the publication, and then puts it out, okay? The same kind of thing with ChatGPT, become the editor. You get ChatGPT to generate the first uh, draft of the content, and then you work on it from there. But to be perfectly honest, for um, you know anybody who thinks, I just need to get ChatGPT to write my next story, my, my next blog post, apart from the fact that's a bit lazy, um, you're just going to end up regurgitating very dry content with little personality, you know? So just use it to um, to inspire you, to give you that first draft. You know, when people are uh, creatives, they sometimes say, I just sit there staring at a blank page, okay? Yeah. You never need to do that anymore. Just get chat <laughs> GPT to fill up the page and then turn it into your creation, you know? Yeah, yeah, I agree completely about that. And uh, I can feel, you know, uh, for example, I can't use uh, AI, chat GPT to generate text because uh, I usually write myself, then I can edit with this tool because it's a great editing tool. You now you can add data, feed all this data and get great results. But if you ask, I tried many different prompts, it's not uh, something new. You know, uh, I, I have the same feeling when I ask my friends about a new movie. And the most common reply is uh, uh, nothing special, the same plot. I watch a lot of similar movies. So if you use ChatGPT to create content, you can understand that customers, users might find this content in the top Google. <laughs> so where uh, ChatGPT can take this data uh, after crawling. Uh, Mike, I want to ask you about uh, another aspect uh, that content creators, uh, that can stop content creators uh, failing. You know, once I uh, watched interview uh, of Shaquille O'Neal and he told that uh, he doesn't feel failing is failing because it's like experience. Uh, it's the way to get uh, the first education because, uh, for example, when he started something new, he always fails, but he can learn to go ahead. And I remember many other great influencers, they spend some time to uh, find what actually will work for them. 
Can you tell how you understand failure, uh, failing and uh, how it can help you to uh, become stronger, you know, to get skills? Because I still see when content creators give up because they can't get results after uh, a few submissions of content, you know. Uh, so any tips about that? Um, you know, a lot of it is down to um, having the ability and the perseverance to understand mm -hmm. that you're not going to get it right from the very beginning. doesn't matter how well you've trained to do your, to do whatever it is. It's like, you know, you pass your driving test, get into a car and 20 minutes later you crash the car. You know? <laughs> That doesn't mean to say you can't drive. You just need more experience, get back in and start driving again. So I think in, certainly when it, when it comes to creating content, um, there are things that you can do um, where you can use one format to see if it works uh, well in that particular format and then transfer it to another. So, you know, if you write a great blog post and it's getting a lot of um, uh, interaction, then that could be a great video as well. So think about turning that one into a video, you know. Um, and if you did the other way around, if you wrote a blog post and it wasn't doing very well, or you did a video that wasn't doing very well, turn it into a blog post and try it that way. You know, there are many things that I learned along the way. It's funny. Um, I, I was thinking when I talked about email before there, but you can actually think about doing this for um, title tags on your web pages. You know, that's what people are going to click when your web page turns up in the SERPs kind of thing. Um, what I used to think about um, uh, email, sending an email, what is it that people are going to click? They're going to click and open the email if the, the headline is compelling, yeah? So how do I find out? What I actually used to do is I used to do um, just small paid search campaigns, and I would use uh, the uh, title, the headline, and the paid search campaign, and I would run a paid search campaign and see which one of my headlines got the most clicks in paid search, and then I would take that headline and use it in my email and see how it worked there, you know? And it works the other way around, you know, that you can actually do the same thing. If a headline works really well um, on an email that you send out, you know, on a, or on a blog post, then turn that into the title tag for your uh, web page. So I, I think you have to be, um, you know, very creative in the way that you create content um, and then think about the various kinds of formats. One of the things that I was explaining to a friend just a couple of days ago um, is that we talk about ranking in the SERPs, okay? And I said, you have no idea the number of times that clients will say to me, um, you know, I'm at number five and my competitor is at number three. At number five is my web page and my competitor has a video at number three. Can you get my web page to rank higher than his video? And that's impossible. That's like saying, can I get an apple to look like an orange? Okay, because people don't understand this, Anatoly, it's really important. What Google does with the SERPs is a mixture, okay, of two things, okay, ranking and then sorting. And sorting is really important. So since we've had universal search, since it wasn't just web pages, now that we have universal search, okay, what happens, first of all, is that they do, it's actually in science, it's called federated search, okay, is they look at the query and they look at where the best results have been for video, where the best results have been for images, where the best results have been for web pages. They look at all of those things, yes? And then they combine those into the SERPs, and then they look at end user data. For that query, are people clicking more on a video, or are they clicking more on a web page? Are they clicking more on an image, or are they clicking on a news result? 
Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the SERPs begin to change. But the ranking and sorting is based on the end user data, what the end user prefers to consume that content. So you take a look at that and then understand those kind of uh, formats. And then you realize that if you're at number five with a web page and the other guy is at number three with a video, don't try and make your web page rank higher. Make a better video. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, nice, nice. Uh, you mentioned this word creativity. Uh, I think it's very important to be creative in marketing because we still have a lot of generic marketing messages, uh, paid ads. Uh, can you tell how to be creative? And let me share a story about uh, Lloyd Richards. Uh, he uh, wrote a book uh, and he spent 14 years to write a book. Uh, uh, then uh, after publishing this book, he uh, spent some money in marketing sales, but uh, he got some random sales, but not good, just uh, nothing special. Then his daughter posted content on TikTok from account with zero followers. Uh, this video became viral, plus 50 million people watched this video, and this book is bestseller on Amazon. So one simple video beats a lot of marketing and sales methods. Uh, I watched this video, of course, and curious how to film such videos. And uh, that you couldn't find nice looking design, simple design, but it was creative. Now uh, it creates the feeling of um, you, you want to read this book. You know, uh, you are curious what kind of book is this if author spent 14 years to write this book. Uh, can you tell about creativity, how to be creative in your uh, content creation process? Because I think everyone wants to get something new and uh, interesting. So again, that's an interesting conversation because, uh, you know, the word creative, if you think about that, applies to so many things, you know, in your job or if you're an artist or if you're a musician, you know, the whole notion of uh, creation. But you have to have something. It has to be inside you. I mean, you can't uh, just say to somebody, paint me an oil painting, you know, or go and learn how to paint one, you know. But if it's inside of you, if you have the feeling that you want to do that. Um, but I think from a marketing point of view, it's not always about the creativity because I have seen, you know, the most beautifully made ads with superstars appearing in them and they sell nothing. They sell nothing. They win an award for being a beautiful ad, but they actually sell nothing. And the whole point is it doesn't matter how great the creative is. If you don't understand, as I said before, you know, what it is that the audience wants to receive, do they really need to receive it in a gold box? Or will they take it wrapped up in a piece of newspaper? You know, at the end, <laughs> if, it's, if it's what they're waiting for, then they'll accept it. So I think you have to spend more time thinking, you know, well, think less about how can I make the most creative ad and think more about how can I create the most acceptable. And you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, I take a look at what happens with uh, TikTok. Um, I see these people creating videos and they do, they get these huge numbers, but it's because it connects with the audience. You know, I mean, I could make a TikTok ad. <laughs> I could make a TikTok movie now. Yeah. And I could bring in some superstar with me and do a, and I guarantee nobody wants to see it, you know, <laughs> but, but if I get one of my grandchildren to make a TikTok, yeah. 
Yeah, because they know exactly what the uh, the audience wants. So the trick is not so much about how can I do the most creative thing, because many creative things flop. I mean, if you think about Hollywood, the number of movies that get made in Hollywood, and there are so many of them, you know, and you don't hear of them because most of them flop, you know. It's, it's only the very few that actually get through because they connect with the audience. So I would think, again, spend more time analyzing the audience. Look at what they're already, the kind of content they're already consuming. And forget about, you know, I could do something better than that. If that's what the audience loves, give them more of what they want, you know? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Love it, love it. Mike, I have the question about uh, Chelsea Digital. You know, mm -hmm. today we have thousand digital marketing agencies, if not millions, I don't know the exact number, a lot of. So why you decided to launch a new one and what kind of benefits you will provide to your customers? Uh, what is your strong side? And uh, describe your perfect customer. <laughs> so, so this is, again, this is very interesting and you'll be happy to know that you're the first person to mention Chelsea Digital in public because it's not being launched until next week. <laughs> so, which is why I didn't mention it earlier on. But uh, yes, yeah, so Chelsea Digital, it, Chelsea, it's called Chelsea Digital because the company was formed literally just a few hundred yards away from Google's headquarters in uh, New York. Okay, so it was literally, it was formed just around the corner from Google in New York and Google's headquarters are in Chelsea. So that's why it's called Chelsea Digital as a New York agency. Um, and that's where I work, although I have a British accent. I actually live in, uh, in New York. Um, and so uh, wh why am I doing this? Well, I've worked for many large agencies. Like I mentioned before, I worked with, uh, uh, you know, with iProspect. More laterally, I worked with uh, NP Digital, which is one of the fastest growing agencies. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to create a new model of agency. And a lot of what I learned through the pandemic is why I've formed this agency, okay? It doesn't need to, I think I mentioned before, my office was on the 65th floor of the Empire State Building, you know, very prestigious for a digital marketing agency. That's for sure. During the pandemic, nobody could go to that office, so there was no reason to have it, you know? Mm -hmm. So work from anywhere is a really important thing, okay? Um, and then the way that we communicate, like we've been doing with Zoom calls, those kind of things, it changes... So the pandemic was a terrible thing, but a few good things that came out of it were understanding how we could communicate differently with each other, that I didn't have to get on an airplane to go and see the client. Yeah. But then the most important thing is this. I don't have to employ 700 specialists and pay all of those salaries. Why do I not need to do that? Because Chelsea Digital is actually a collective of experts, me being one of them. And we all have a network of people who are really excellent in their skills, but we don't need to employ them. So we actually work with hundreds of specialists, yeah, all over the world. They can be anywhere in the world, but as long as they're known and we trust them. So whether it comes down to people who know how to do technical SEO, whether it's web development, whether it is creativity, um, and I can use these people from all over the world. So that's one of the things that we learned during the pandemic. So it's about as close as you can get to having a virtual agency. Um, and it will compete with the larger ones. What are we gonna do? At the very heart of what we do is SEO. I just wish we didn't call it SEO. I just wish we called it CEA. And I use that, I use that, um, 
as a, as a much more, I think, a much better description of what people actually do these days, you know? Yeah, love it. Awesome. Okay, when you have uh, the website link, let me know. I shot out with my audience. And uh, yeah, interesting, interesting to uh, to check out uh, because, you know, uh, I agree with you. Uh, you don't need to employ people to cooperate with them because, for example, in my course, uh, yeah, I cooperated with Lily Ray, uh, Jeff Coyle, Mike Phillips, uh, Chelsea Alves, many other great experts who uh, film great lessons for my course because uh, the main reason why I did it uh, because I found some customers don't understand SEO. I usually tell them, take the course, <laughs> learn the basic, because uh, we usually get uh, high results with someone who understands SEO, how it works, why we need to create high-quality content. It costs like $10, $20, not a lot, but you can get the basic uh, from great experts. And yeah, when you cooperate with awesome specialists, you can achieve high results because uh, generic SEO doesn't work. And Mike, uh, I have my final question, uh, probably even two, uh, about your experience. Uh, you know, uh, I often uh, see uh, customers who don't understand SEO uh, and I usually tell them, take the course. But uh, let's imagine if you started today from scratch without any experience, knowledge, skills, what will you do today to learn more about SEO or uh, CEA? <laughs> So I think um, Google is about to make one of the biggest changes to uh, uh, what we refer to as the SERPs, and we're going to have to stop calling them that because it stands for Search Engine, uh, search engine uh, Results Pages, yes? Um, there is so much more in the content experience that you will see from Google starting from next week, okay? You're going to see so many different types of content in there. It's not just about web pages. So most SEO has been based around ranking web pages and creating content on web pages. Um, but I would say um, that's a fundamental skill. Don't stop doing that. You don't need, you know, you can learn to do SEO in a few weeks, the basic fundamental of SEO in a few weeks, yes? But then you have to start and learn to understand, as I say, what is the content experience? I could write a web page, but is a web page the best result? Could be a video, could be an image could be, you know, a different kind of blog post. So I've always said in this ranking and sorting thing that I was explaining before, you have to think about what is the content experience like for this particular query. So start and think about that. What you really have to start and think about now with these major changes is the much richer experience that the end user will become uh, used to. Okay. So what I'm talking about here is not just the artificial intelligence. Okay. But I'm talking about um, augmented reality. And a lot of this content is already coming in to uh, Google. You know, there's a lot of stuff that you can see in the results now where Google will actually ask, can I have access to your camera and your microphone and then give you a 3D effect? You know, they're already doing this. You can see the way that they're experimenting with it. So we're all going to have to learn to start and think about, On the, first of all, there are going to be these new content types. So how do we optimize augmented reality? How do we all optimize AR? And when is the best time to use that? The greatest thing to understand, and I wrote this 21 years ago, is to fully understand user intent. What is it that they are trying to do at the very beginning? 
So intent still is based around informational, navigational, and then transactional. With transactional, that's trying to meet somebody at the checkout when they're paying. And you start shouting, I'm over here, pick me, choose me. That's the worst place to try and make a connection with the end user, with the customer, okay? Because when a customer wakes up in the morning, or somebody who could become a customer, they're just somebody trying to solve a problem. And they're not B2C or B2B. They're just a human being trying to solve a problem. So at that informational stage, if you create a content experience that helps them to solve their problem at the very earliest, then they already have the brand affinity because you've helped them. By the time they get to the end of the customer journey, to the checkout, there's so little friction because you've already helped them. So start and think not just about what the content, the different types of content, what the content experience should be at each stage. At the informational stage, is it a video? Is, is that going to take too much time to explain or will they not be able to access the video, whatever the subject matter is? So maybe a web page is the better idea, you know? Do I actually, if I'm selling some fashion item, is AR, augmented reality, uh, a, a better way to do it? So think about the user intent at each stage of the journey and then start and think about the content experience. What is the experience like? One of the other things is that we use the term relevant. So content has to be relevant, but you have to understand what that word means. You know, it's a small word, but it has a vast meaning. If somebody was to do a search for here in the US, if they were to do a search for CNN, which is a big news channel, yeah, they might want to know what's in the news. So, so providing them with a web page that gives you the history of CNN, it may be relevant, but it's absolutely useless. That's not what I want, you know? So being relevant and useful in the moment and understanding context, that's the most important thing, you know? But I do think that um, certainly mobile is first. Everybody's walking around with one of these. Understand the, the kind of content that you can create now. Like I say, if you were to do a search for, I mean, Google started doing this two years ago, I think. Um, if you do a search for uh, Golden Retriever, which is a dog, yes, yeah, a beautiful dog, I think, yeah, a, yeah Golden Retriever. Mm -hmm. um, go and take a look at the results, and you'll see there's a 3D dog, yeah, actually in the results. Click on the dog. Google will say, can I have access to your camera? Yes, and once you give access to the camera, the dog is with you, literally with you in the room. So the reason that I mentioned that, it's not new. It's been around for a while. But go and take a look at that content experience and imagine this is the kind of experience that end users will come to expect. And they don't care how it's done. They just want the best content experience, you know? Nice. Love it. Love it. So valuable. You know, I had uh, the next question about the future of SEO, but you replied to this question. You know, you can read my mind. And... You know, Mike, you lead me to an emergency room to consume all this information, <laughs> to think how <laughs> I can adapt to change what I have. Uh, Mike, it's a big pleasure to get on my show, to learn from you. Tell our audience the best way how to keep learning from you, how to follow you, how to reach out to you. Um, so I've been trying to uh, get this off the ground for quite some time. Like you, there's a, a, a video podcast uh, that I've been working on. Um, so if you go to YouTube and just search for SES TV, SES stands for search mm -hmm. engine stuff. Okay, search engine stuff, <laughs> SES TV. Uh, if you go there, you'll see that I've already started posting 
some videos. I went to uh, PubCon, um, which is an SEO conference here in the US, uh, and I interviewed, uh, it's worth uh, uh, your uh, viewers, listeners going there because I interviewed uh, 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 Gary from Google, uh, Fabrice from Bing, talking about ChatGPT, about uh, generative AI, using it in SEO, and about four or five other experts, Lily Ray and some other people. So there's some great tips, some great conversations. Go and take a look at that. And then from the end of this month, there'll be a new video every week. Wow, nice, nice. Love it. And, love you'll, it. Be, love and you'll be on yeah. one of them, Antoli. <laughs> oh, wow, great. You'll be my guest. Yeah, we'll yeah. Be will be great will be great yeah i i enjoy to speak with you <laughs> to get to learn from you and yeah if i can share value i will <laughs> yeah a big pleasure mike again uh love it uh so valuable guys you can find the links uh to uh mike youtube channel to uh his social media accounts website in the description below listen us on apple google spotify and see you next time